Hey everyone, Tom here. Uh, reporting again from my garage, because 2020 is the gift that keeps on giving. There was a tornado in southwestern Connecticut, or several tornadoes in southwestern Connecticut. Uh, on Thursday, when we normally record, uh, and wasn't able to get down to the studio, uh, we're going to present one of our hodgepodge pods again. This week is a Wes Anderson Megapod. For no other reason than we have three Wes Anderson movies that we've we've talked about on our lists. Might make for a good episode. Who knows? I haven't listened to those episodes in a while. But we will definitely be back with a review of the new Bill and Ted movie and uh, the next two movies on our lists next week. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sticking around with us, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot. Welcome back. My number 93 is 1998's second feature film from filmmaker Wes Anderson and the last film of his on my list to do a little spoiler warning. Co-written between Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, University of Texas alums. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's important. We need sponsorship from them. It's Rushmore. Rushmore. Tells the tale of Max Fisher, played by 17-year-old Jason Schwartzman in his debut, mm. uh, playing a 15-year-old who looks like he's 30. My God. No, Jason, he looks 15. You think so? I think I watching it now, Jason, he does. I, I know. I just looked at it. I was like, Jason Schwartzman was like, I'll had to be oh, close to 30 when he did this. And I was like, oh my God, he was 17? No, and he just he hadn't grown into his face quite yet. I guess so. They do mention that, the oval, the oval face during his arrest scene. Yeah. But, uh, he, he plays a poor student, a a poor student in the sense of bad at his class. One of the worst students they have at yeah. uh, as As told by Nelson Guggenheim, played by Brian Cox, uh, who becomes enamored by Rosemary Cross, the art teacher, played by Olivia Williams. Um, and it is basically a romantic... Lovelorn coming of age tale uh, as Max competes with Bill Murray's Herman Bloom for Mrs. Cross's affection. Mm-hmm. And from there, a Wes Anderson film emerges, but <laughs> not so much of a Wes Anderson film. And that is why it shows up on my list. This was the first Wes Anderson film I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. I saw this. Uh, in between Royal Tannenbaums, which I do not like, and Life oh, we'll have a good conversation about that. Yeah. One later, Maybe, and Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which I also really do not like. Uh, we will not be having no, a conversation, be no about conversation that. with that. Um, so this was the first Wes Anderson film I had seen, and I appreciated the hallmarks of Wes Anderson throughout the use of symmetry. Uh, the stylistic choices, um, the, the moments that reflect films like Graduate and Harold and Maude, 
but mostly I like it because it's an imperfect movie and it's authentic. And that's the big issue I have. I think a lot of this conversation is going to be, I don't want to say a loss of a filmmaker, but, but a filmmaker who's become so enamored by his motifs and so much of a person who's strung up in style. And this is a big argument that's made about Wes Anderson right now is does his substance, you know, is his substance told through style? And I don't think so anymore. But I think here it was. Um, well, I think the style, I, we're going to disagree with this later at some point. I think the style. Oh, no, I, I would not say Rural Tannenbaum's. I say Rural Tannenbaum still has a lot of substance. I just no, do I think, not like Rural Tannenbaum. So I think, yeah. So, But I think he, um, I think he perfected his style in, in Royal Tannenbaum's. I think he had a vision in Oh, I would agree. Rushmore. The style in Royal Tannenbaum's is better. I just don't like the he story. He has married... Right. Well, I think, I think interestingly enough, he married the, his style to the perfect story in the Royal Tannenbaum's. But I think there's something to be said for trying this style out on this story, which makes it an alive movie. And he hasn't made an alive movie since the Royal Tannenbaum's. And I would agree. And that is, um, there's, there's a lot of arguments about Wes Anderson's first three films, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and Royal Tannenbaum's. Royal Tannenbaum's is made on a budget of $21 million, so he's able to do a lot more than mm-hmm. he is with Rushmore. Rushmore is made on a budget of $10 million. And so a lot of the setting, all of the settings really are done on location, done in and throughout Houston, Texas. The Rushmore Academy, Grover Cleveland High School, all on location. They had to, as was mentioned in an article, ghetto up. <laughs> Know that's a term of the age, not really appropriate nowadays. Yeah. Um, uh, public school for for Grover Cleveland, but you see the stylistic choices in Wes Anderson, um, framing his picture. You know, trying to get that very solid rule of thirds, especially like in the chapel scene that would then be later in films. I think especially starting with like Darjeeling Limited, mm-hmm. done in a very manufactured way. Yeah, where he had a budget, where he knew he people knew studios knew he was in a very manufactured way, where studios knew he was a name, knew he could bring in money, so they gave him the money he needed, and so he was able to frame his scenes perfectly because he feels like a bit of a perfectionist in that way. Mm-hmm. Here he did not have that. Uh, There's a famous instance of Wes Anderson being nervous with Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. And so like whispering to him direction, worried about the fact that Bill Murray would like yell at him and say he's wrong. And was like Bill Murray constantly deferred to him. Uh And there was a scene that they wanted to do of like a helicopter sequence between Max and um, Herman. Uh Uh-huh that was going to cost around $75,000. And Disney went like, yeah, go fuck yourselves. That's too much money. And Bill Murray wrote them a blank check, like create a blank check for Wes Anderson. And they ended up not filming the sequence. But in later films, Wes Anderson would want to do a shot like that. And Disney would ejaculate over itself (laughs) and fire another James Gunn. You know, you know what the problem actually, the, the problem more realistically is that they would give him the money to do that. And he would shoot it with like a helicopter puppet. Oh, or a exactly. model against a painted backdrop, and you know, I don't know. I don't do a Wes Anderson thing to it, and you, everyone would be like, "Oh, it's so cool! Look what he did!" He, but it's not, but it's not cool. cool. It, it was cool back when he made this movie because it was cool in the sense of there's a rawness to it. Mm. There is, 
a need to access his pure talents as a filmmaker. And he's an extremely talented filmmaker. Well, I mean, he tells, he, he sculpts a story through visuals quite often, even in his current films. But there's a difference to me. And from manufacturing it on a very inauthentic, artificial level and being forced to manufacture it with the tools that you have. And it right. makes it much more of a realistic, much more of a humanistic sort of story. And that's what Rushmore is to me. And it makes the movies and his and his style much more justified. So, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this or if you remember this or maybe it's just for me it has a bigger role than it does for you but like do you remember the first time you saw the scene where they're showing all of Max's clubs to the creations making time yeah you know the oh yeah it's one of the great scenes in modern film history, and I that's, think. And that was my introduction to Wes Anderson. Like, this was the first thing I'd seen of his. Um, seems, and so, like, that seems so new. It blew my fucking mind when I saw it. Just going to, like, these really goofy montages, the, barbon- the bombardment society being a dodgeball club. But and just, like, this goofiness, but, like, this, this, like, whimsicalness. And, like, when whimsical... Right. Felt really, truly, like really, actually, actually whimsical. Yeah, so not a, not like I, was, I need to do this. Right, and so here's the thing that I would say is that he he captured something there on purpose, but he's almost seems like he's been trying to capture that exact same energy in every single movie he's made since, and he hasn't he hasn't done it. I mean, Royal I mean, Tenenbaums, maybe Royal Tenenbaums, but like, it has a different it has a different yeah. energy. I mean, Royal Tenenbaums is like a is like a picture that. Like a painting that moves. Um, I but, opened a bottle there and almost cut myself. That would have been fun. That's how we fucking do it here. Pivotal film. Um, Pivotal blood. <laughs> but that, like the first time you see Cork that, crips, you know, set up with the block, the you know, the square block letters with, um, you know, alternating colors kind of designed to bleed into the background a little bit. Um, set up like, you know, human dioramas. You're just kind of like, what the fuck? What is this? Like, what is happening here? This is, this doesn't happen. Movies is the fourth wall being broken. What's happening? What's supposed to be? What's the point of this? Um, and there's there's a lot of that too. Like like that is is a great introduction. But he does that again later on in the montage, um, to the Who song. Yep. Where they're kind of like one upping, yeah. Where they're one upping, um, the kind of like roles of revenge. Where you know there's very purposeful framing choices in that montage. She, like when Bill Murray's going to destroy Max's bike, it tries to keep like a dolly line in center, but it kind of misses at times. But what I really appreciate too is where Max goes to cut the brakes, and you know it does that like center shot that's very, you know, center frame is is Wes Anderson's thing. But usually the color palette's in line. Mm-hmm. Usually you know you're gonna get. A, sym- a symmetry to the colors, but here he just didn't have that. It was just, yeah, he's just on the ground of a factory. Well, and I would say too that I would point to that scene as well. That exact moment. Um, I don't know if we're going to call that whole thing a scene, but that exact moment where he's going into the thing. Um, it's like a montage. I, I'm drawn to um, Jason Jason Schwartzman's performance there. I mean, he performs it like he's cut brake lines before. He's 15 years old, but he whips his sunglasses off. He has the exact correct tools. 
right there. He slides under, you know, you know, abruptly, but also with a, a very specific purpose in a very specific spot. Um, well, I'd go back to that creation uh, montage in the beginning and the fact that some of those clubs that are kind of brought up quickly are then used later on. Um, in the sense of, you could look at the go kart thing as him having experience with vehicles of some sort. Oh, that's in mind. interesting. Yeah, and that is kind of more firmly grounded in the fact when he <laughs> lets the bees out. Well, the beekeepers club, yeah, in, from the beekeepers club. Well, they talk club. about like her husband, Miss um, Cross, Miss Cross's husband, um, founded the beekeepers club at Rushmore. That Max but, is the president of. But that's the thing. That's that's kind of that. That's what made me really appreciate this movie. And I wouldn't say it's the first example. There's a lot of examples, but th- this this very raw visual aesthetic and a director you can see is still up and coming, still hasn't set his foot. Uh, I'd seen I saw Bottle Rocket immediately after this, and Bottle Rocket's much more of a very traditional kind of feature. It still has some of those it's cornerstones and touches. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, still has those touches, especially in the dialogue and the characterizations, but not so much in the visual style. Mm-hmm. But to me, this spoke to me because it's it's authentic in the way that he is he has a vision in his head. He doesn't necessarily he's not necessarily has the tools available to him to craft that image on film, but it's somebody who has that vision. I think we we're talking off air about Roger Ebert's kind of not really scathing but middling review of yeah. this. He gave it two and a half stars and a most of that review focuses in the fact that, like, he talked about Wes Anderson, you know, he, he reviewed it at Sundance and talked about how Wes Anderson was able to sell it to Disney, to Miramax at Sundance. And, like, every new filmmaker is out here at Sundance trying to find a production, trying to find someone to pick it up, mm-hmm. and they're going to fail and whatnot. And it kind of feels like he's he he saw that vision. Mm-hmm. He saw that the fact that Wes Anderson had a really raw style and uh, raw eye and and saw the ability to tell a story but he didn't feel like this this kid this 29 year old well, kid can't be doing this yeah and to and to simultaneously defend Roger Ebert and also kind of um speak to your point and and agree with your point is that um i think to Roger Ebert a raw eye is still mean streets you know what i mean mm. is still you know, an early Francis Ford Coppola movie is still an early Sydney like Deer Hunter, or, or yeah, or or you know Deer Hunter, or like an early Sydney Lumet movie. You know yeah. what I mean? A uh, Peter um, Bogdanovich. Oh yeah, I mean I I don't even want to talk about Peter. No one ever should ever speak the name Peter Bogdanovich ever again. It's the era of Peter Bogdanovich is fucking. We're, g- we're gonna have to talk about him at some point later this year. Whatever. I think he's in the other side of the world. Oh no, no, but not as a director. No, as an actor though. Um, but that's the thing. So uh, yeah, so a raw eye used Starring to mean that that raw new talent Orson Welles. Yeah, a raw eye used to mean the Last Picture Show. Um, a raw eye used to mean fucking Orson Welles. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, exactly. Which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Um, I don't think they said. I don't think people. This is another example of where the establishment, and I, this is not political at all. I'm just using this political words. The yeah, establishment man. was not man, prepared man. for a new vision of what um, the for a new vision of what the culture was going to look like. And I think this was really important. I think so, uh, Rushmore is hugely important for opening doors. Yes. Um, Wes Anderson's not my favorite filmmaker. 
I, I we talked about this before with Moonrise Kingdom. I appreciate what he does, but he opened up the door, I think, for films that were made maybe previous and around that time, such as Pi and the he following. Op- yeah, which are two filmmakers I prefer much more, and Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan. But Wes Anderson was like this film ends up making around eighteen nineteen million dollars. It's a it's a success for an independent film, like worldwide box office of nineteen million dollars off of what basically you know, ends up being mostly a coming-of-age comedy. I mean, it reestablished Bill Murray as a human. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not just as a performer, but as a person that exists on the earth. Yeah. I mean, he, he was largely, you know... He's pushed, forgotten after... He's pushed to the margins of, of after the Groundhog entertainment Day. industry after Groundhog Day. Um, and then Wes Anderson just picks him up and resurrects his career and within a couple of years he's getting nominated for fucking Oscar. He got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor off this movie. So He should have gotten an Oscar nomination no, of for course. this movie. Yeah. He should have won an Oscar for this movie but that's neither here nor there. But I think I would say that this movie shows up as a pivotal film for me hugely because it opens up the door for what would come in the 2000s for that kind mm-hmm. of raw auteur filmmaking. You don't see that a lot in the late 90s. Um, at least in the mainstream you don't see that auteur eye. As much. Well, you have uh, like the, new Atirai. Right, because you it, had the Tarantinos. It's definitely Tarantinos. like a new age of, of cinema. Well, so you had the Tarantinos and you had the, um, you know. Yeah, from the, the maybe the Soderbergs mid, and, mid. In the mid 80s leading on, like the Paul Verhovens and whatnot. Um, but yeah, you didn't have. Where we now we have. The auteur used to kind of mean. The, the idea of the auteur used to mean something different. So, you know, Will Friedkin was an auteur at one point. You go from making the French connection to The Exorcist to fucking Sorcerer. Um, or, you know, Peter Bogdanovich, who made Last Picture Show and then nothing. I mean, he made movies, but they're garbage. Um, Fuck you, Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, take that. He's, we're, he's you and Lawrence Kasdan. Um, you know, the auteur, the idea of the auteur in film. And James A. Brooks were coming for you, too. <laughs> with Wes Anderson. Kind of, I took a different took a different turn. You could make us, you could make a small movie, and say something really big. Um, it wasn't the idea that you were going to make a, you know, I don't know if Dennis Hopper was ever an, considered an auteur when he made Easy Rider, um, but the idea wasn't ever that you would make a small movie and then make another small movie and then make another small movie. Or not movies that had bigger budgets, but that played to a smaller audience. The idea with the auteurs was always, especially in the 60s and uh, in the 70s, was like you would make some small movies and then you would make a big movie. And then you would get awards and then you would make, you know, prestige movies for the rest of your life. And I think, I think what's interesting about Wes Anderson is the fact that he kind of opened up the door in the fact that Christopher Nolan... For example, makes following follows up with Memento, a slightly bigger movie but still smaller. Insomnia has nameless actors but still kind of small. Um, you know, those first three movies are, are still staying within that wheelhouse. And I think he, Wes Anderson, also opens up the door for somebody like a Shane Carruth, mm-hmm. who makes something like Primer and then Upstream Color, but is still staying within that kind of small world. And I think Wes Anderson with Bottle Rocket. And then Rushmore, and then unfortunately, kind of like from there, Royal Tannenbaums has a bigger budget, but Royal Tannenbaums is still within that kind of restrained wheelhouse. But after that, he kind of, I, I feel like he loses the plot. I love Moonrise Kingdom, but it's starting to lose the plot for me. Um, 
But I think one of the biggest reasons he shows up on this list where he does is the fact that above all else, Wes Anderson opened up a lot of doorways to the auteurs of the late 90s. You know, like you're saying, Roger Ebert was looking for somebody to make a mean streets, looking for somebody to make a deer hunter of the time. But Wes Anderson allowed filmmakers uh, from the success of Rushmore and from the success of the Royal Tannenbaums, filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, Paul Thomas Anderson, directors I all like a lot more, Mm -hmm. not to say so much, but they all have films that are going to show up on my list later. Um, You know, directors who have a vision, but have a vision that's very independent of themselves and isn't so much of a callback to the films of previous. I mean, Rushmore has the moments that harken back to something like The Graduate, you know, where, you know, Herman drops into the water and is kind of sitting underneath the water. That's very graduate-like. Or Harold and Maude, a lot of the story marks, a lot of the hallmarks of the story connect into something like Harold and Maude. But Wes Anderson made it okay for a filmmaker to be an auteur of a new age. He kind of opened up the door to the new age. Of well, you film. can all, I mean, you can think about, if you think about that Herman Bloom scene where he's in the bottom of the pool as a nod to the graduate, you kind of have to think of that. You have to think of how is it a nod? Is it an homage or is it in a way a kind of subversion of the graduate? That Maybe. It's, yeah. not I the young, that way. it's not the young kid that's in the pool anymore. It's the old man. Are and, we still, is there still room? Is he trying to say that, I don't, I don't even really want to make a case for what he's trying to say. Is there something at play here where these new auteurs that we just mentioned are kind of saying to the old art auteurs, like the Mike, or, or to people like Roger Ebert, or even to Pauline Kael, who Wes Anderson famously screened the movie specifically for in her Barrington Mass, local Barrington Mass theater, and Pauline Kael, who was, you know, riddled with Parkinson's, the thing she said to him after the movie was, did you show them a script before they let you make this? And he was just confused by the fact that that happened. You know, is he saying to the Roger Eberts and the Pauline Kales, that, or even to a further extent, the Mike Lees, as you were saying, is he saying that these it's not movies can look like this now? Movies can feel like this. This is the new energy in movies. I, there's I a new irony. There's a new thing in movie and movies where we can use irony as symbolism and not just. You know the '60s, '70s auteur version of symbolism. I don't even know if that's necessarily true. I would almost say the use of that scene with Herman Bloom underneath the water is maybe an example of that visual storytelling. Um, you know, Herman is kind of like that, still that kid almost. He hasn't grown up. He hasn't matured yet to be the adult. So he is very much like the Dustin Hoffman s character. Mm. Um, and it's shown that way by having an old man underneath the water in the same way to kind of escape the droll drums and the misconceptions that he has of well, the world. Well, and he's saying the old man things when he's giving the speech in, in chapel to the kids in, at the Rushmore Academy early in the movie when he's just like, you know. You guys have it real easy. I never had it like this where I grew up. But I send my kids here because the fact is you go to one of the best schools in the country, Rushmore. Now, for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich, and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. 
Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. Thank you. A kind of very punk aesthetic, don't let the man get you down, you know, fight the power. But he is the man. He is the power. Yeah, exactly. He's a but he's just, I think the thing that Rushmore makes interesting is that the idea that he's a multimillionaire doesn't mean that he specifically agrees with even, I mean, he hates his kids famously, you know, he, he reaches back to hit his kid when they say they won't invite Max, when they won't invite Max to their party. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not your traditional stick in the mud old man type of character. And it's interesting because I think Max perceives him as a, a slightly hipper version of his dad where he is that stuck in the mud old character and that he isn't a th- he isn't a threat to what Max wants but uh, and perhaps this is a testament to Max's youth is that he doesn't perce- it's a testament to Max's youth that he doesn't perceive that um and is the idea that nobody knows anything you know all these 60s or 70s movies there's always like there's always somebody that knows something you know what i mean somebody that's got some that's got it more together than everybody else this is a very Gen X movie in the sense that nobody knows anything. Yeah, and there's what's nice is you know he he casts two actors, especially in Bill Murray, um, and slightly in the same way in Olivia Williams and Jason Schwartzman, and the fact that they're able to telegraph those moments where they have a realization of some other character's growth or some other realization of that character with like subtle facial reactions. Mm-hmm. There's that scene where Jason Schwartzman Max reveals to Herman that you know his dad's actually a barber near mm-hmm. the end of the film and like it's it's sold in just the very slightest like change in Bill Murray's face of like this kind of like appreciation of his growth like but it's Max's also growth as an and, adult but it's also and, like the acceptance of the friendship too but it's also sold in Jason Schwartzman's the same thing a very subtle growth of character where he's a little lighter he's not as heavy i mean even though he's wearing that really heavy velvet suit like the yeah. green velvet suit He's got like a lighter air to him. He's not as he's not as serious, and somehow everybody isn't as serious anymore. And the whole film kind of raises up. I mean, and that's one of the things that it's one of the things. My problems with the film is like I don't know. It seems like there's four acts, not five, and there's not three. It seems like there's four acts. How so? Where so the first act obviously is like the introduction of all the players. The second act is. Um, begins when like Herman meets of the wooing Max. the wooing scenes um, there's the third act which I think is delineated by the you know the the curtains the curtains mud like scenes that. yeah there's the third act where uh, Max is depressed and he's dropped out of school and he's being a barber and um, he has you know things that you know he gets attacked um, by Dirk and his friends and you know Dirk won't give him his hand and um, and then there's the fourth act where everything kind of comes together. I would say it's a denouement, mostly. Yeah, but it's 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 a long denouement, but it's well. So that's uh, like like I said, that's one of my problems is that I don't think he was a skilled enough. I don't think he was a skilled enough filmmaker until after he made this movie to not make those scenes or those those periods of the movie just kind of drag. Well, I think it's to just the a, point where they they be, seem like they be. 
they act as like self-contained acts almost of of a play that seems to be suggested in the movie um where i mean even something like we talked about before where they're kind of doing to the who song they're doing all the you know he's running over his bike tire and they're putting the bees in the thing and he's cutting his brakes um it's supposed to be really fun it's supposed to be a fun montage that compares to the earlier montage but it's not as fun and it's not as it's not as light and it's not it's not filmed and i don't think it's supposed it's obviously not supposed to be as light but because it's not light it kind of drags the movie drags at that point when yeah. max becomes sad and depressed starting with all of those things um and it takes and that slow motion arrest scenes a little on the nose it's just, it's just told for it's it works well with the music so they kind of do that and it and it relates to the slow motion leaving the elevator after you put the bees in yeah and it's just a little too it's a little much it's where it stops being a semi-believable movie about a kid with delusions of grandeur um a, a grown-up who never grew up, who is in a you know, a seemingly loveless marriage, a seemingly loveless family, who's just reaching out for someone who just cares um, about him, and turns into like a different kind of movie. Well, see, that's why I appreciate about it. Like that's I think why it shows up on the list is if it had been more of a sort of concise film, had it been a, a lot more of a tight film, I, agree I don't think it would have been has remembered. I think it's yeah. I think its failures actually work for its for benefit. Its benefit yeah. And yet it creates that otherworldliness to it. It creates this very much. You're watching a film all throughout Rushmore. You don't become so invested in the story that you don't think you're watching a movie. Throughout the entire time, you know you're watching beats of a film. You know you're watching something that's stylistically being presented to you as a story in the visual medium. In the sense of you know everything that Wes Anderson's doing works either towards the story works towards the interpretation of how the characters are done um you know talking back to our bonus episode a couple weeks ago with lynn ramsey she's someone who's a little more cut, cut and concise and will minimalize everything mm-hmm. and she's kind of fallen underneath the radar you know we need to talk about kevin gets a little bit discussed um but you're never really here morvin caller rat catcher all those movies kind of just don't get talked about because they're so tight and so concise and having this sort of motif early on established i think was to the benefit of it and the fact that it created a voice and that's why i appreciate it for and that's why it shows up here as a pivotal film for me is the fact that it allowed a filmmaker who's still raw who still has a lot of talent and has an eye and has a voice to do something and you know around that time Looking at even like the Oscars, you'd had movies like The English Patient, Shakespeare in Love, and Titanic, when movies that are really safe and of that time. Mm-hmm. It's, that's what the late 90s were known for. It's just these kind of safe movies. There's a couple that pop in that will be talked about on my list that weren't. But what was nice about this was I think it just opened up a lot of doors. And it opened up a lot of doors to the films that would come out in the late 90s, the later part of the 90s, 99, and then in the 2000s, that told a new vision, that had a new eye and a new sort of way of telling a story. That was really important. One of the things you could also point to this time was where the Oscars, you know, aside from American Beauty, um, which was culturally relevant and then rewarded justly at the, at, you know, in the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. where the movies that really moved the culture that people talked about, that people wrote about, that people got excited about, we're not the same movies that the establishment, you know, um, 
film, whatever you want to call it, you know, the political body governing what gets released or what doesn't get released, the big studios and what have you, um, people weren't talking about those those movies. Like the fact that Shakespeare in Love won an Oscar actually in reality means nothing. You know what I mean? Because nobody talked about it then. Nobody's talking about it now. Nobody talks about it now. It's just a movie that came and won an Oscar for Best Picture and Best Actress and then disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, Thank God. It's one of the, yeah. Um, but you see something with this. This movie, with a lot of other movies that came out after this, you know, American Beauty being one of them, but also less recognized movies that you already kind of mentioned, like Boogie Nights, um, you know, and yeah, Boogie Nights is, is a year and before. Stuff like that. But... but even, or even, you know, the earlier Linkletter stuff, um, transitioning into Before Sunset, um, which came out or around. Like something like Waking Life, Waking which Life. is doing a lot of unique things. You know, you things. get people. Or this... later, like Shane Kroop's like Primer. Mm. I feel like this movie got people interested in watching and thinking about movies. Again, yeah. You know what I mean? Bringing and, and... it back. Into a, into a more, into a way that people did when Pulp Fiction came out and that they kind of stopped doing because all these, you know, the studios were making the movies that they were making and there was Braveheart and there was Titanic and whatever. But then um, the movies became interesting. And I think the soundtrack probably had a lot to do with that where they he leaned heavily on... Like these, the British Invasion. The British Invasion stuff and like these hipster songs, but also... The idea of, you know, The Wind by Cat Stevens was used in, like, every movie of those three years. Because almost, fa- like, you know, so Rushmore used The Wind, I think, badly. I think um, Almost Famous used The Wind in a better scene. I, I think the more most interesting use of song from Wes Anderson in this movie is um, his use of John Lennon's O Yoko towards the end of the movie where things are starting to kind of click for, for Max and he's... Um, finding his voice. Finding his voice. He's reestablished. You know, he's met Margaret Yang while she's flying her model airplane, and he looks at her flight plan, and he sees that there's another person, and she says, like, uh, that the U.S. government doesn't actually want to use her science experiment. She just faked all the results, and Max kind of sees, like, a kindred spirit in yeah. Margaret Yang. And then, you know, you have, the, oh, you have Oyoko, and it's, and it's aesthetically... It works aesthetically with the movie in the sense that it's bouncy. It's got a catchy melody. Um it aligns itself to all the other British invasion stuff that we'd already heard. But if you dig into the context of it, um, you know, you have the idea that it was written, you know, it was written about Yoko Ono, who... This is around the Imagine. And this is on the Imagine. This is on the Imagine album. So it's like just post Beatles. It speaks to the idea that there's something that comes between something. So it's... um, And he's chosen sides. Herman Bloom coming between him and Miss Cross, Miss Cross coming between him and um, Herman Bloom, um, himself coming between Herman Bloom and Miss Cross. Um, it speaks to that. It speaks to, yeah, to the idea that he's moved on. So it's not so much so that he's, he's chosen sides in the sense that he's decided to see Rushmore as what it, re- for what it really is, as opposed to what he kind of wishes it could, could be, which and is what we saw his- for the whole movie. Accepting his age in many ways, too. Right. And so that it's okay to have a girlfriend that's his age. Yeah. Um, I mean, he doesn't I'm, need to fake being anybody. Right. He, he doesn't need to of... pretend his dad is a neurosurgeon. He doesn't need to 
put on these pretenses. He can be a teenager. And a, I mean, a mature teenager for, you know, a 15-year-old. Right. Um, but does not need those pretenses anymore. He can, he can leave that all in the past. He can, he can, live, in, he can live in the life that he actually has instead of exactly. trying to conform to a life that he's never going to have. And the o- life that he thinks his dead mother wanted for him, right. exactly. But Oyoko kind of says all of those things. Where in another movie, they would have had a bunch of expository dialogue or a lot of visual images that conveyed that. Um, but Which is like bringing back to like that, that using all three different styles. Right, to he's, tell really, he's really savvy at using, these, at using these songs. Or when he is really savvy at using these songs, it works really well. It actually works perfectly. It works better than doing something else would have. Well, that's why I'd say like, a big thing, once again, kind of bearing into this point that the old Wes Anderson versus the new Wes Anderson is I think Mark Mothersbaugh does a lot better job with the soundtrack, composing the soundtrack, bringing together the tracks itself, and also the score than somebody like Alexander Duplat did. I think Alexander Duplat's kind of the so, wrong person to be with Wes Anderson. Well, he's, just, I don't know. He's, he's, he's teachy, overrated. He's fantastical. He's boring. He doesn't deserve to win the Oscar this past year. <laughs> well, I mean, both of I mean, so in Carter Burwell's Fargo score, too, at first, when it first is introduced, when you see that snowplow kind of just going through the purple semi-darkness of that opening shot of Fargo, um, and you have this kind of neo-Western like score kind of swell up, mm-hmm. you're like, what the fuck is this? But... After you watch the movie, you realize that it's kind of perfect. Yeah. It's it, it's the thing that works. Alexander Duplat's scores seem to just fade into the background. of, But they're intrusive. They're intrusive, but they kind of like do the same thing over and over again. The, the fact that they become monotone. Well, I mean, we were talking about the John Williams score in Accidental Taurus last week, and that's the same thing. He just picks a theme, and he just fucking hammers it until it's just stuck in your head like a pop song, and you're like, I don't want that in there. Yeah. That's not a pop song. That's a film score. I don't want that in my brain. And I think what Marsball did is he does a lot of the sounds that the plot did, would, would try to replicate later, but they have an authenticity to it. And this is the, the thing about this movie, ultimately, is it's authentic. Um, and that's why, you know, this is the reason why it shows up on my list, is the fact that it is a very true-to-itself film. You know, in, in the its rawness in its filmmaking, its rawness in its storytelling, its commitment to doing the vision that Wes Anderson had, and the fact that that sort of commitment kind of eschews a lot of what was happening in film at the time. Because, you know, we both grew up with this movie. You know, mm, yeah. you were graduating high school around that time. I was, you know, I saw this in my freshman year of college, 2004. It's so like we grew up with those type of films. Um and we saw the culture of film in real time at this point. And, you know, the late 90s was kind of marked, just as I said, with those very artificial movies. And this was a very real film. And the movies that would follow and kind of follow in its footsteps, follow in the footsteps of Paul Thomas Anderson, Christopher Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, are very real. Well, I think it points to something that we're kind of dealing with now in movies, is that there's a new energy. Wes Anderson represented a new energy. So whether it's Jared... Um, Saulnier, Jeremy Saulnier, Jeremy Saulnier, or it's you know name countless other directors that are making that are making their Martin first McDonald's, couple movies right now. Three um, you know, Boots Riley, uh, or you even know, Damien Chazelle. Yeah. You know what I mean, like even though we're not big fans of Damien Chazelle, he's doing something different. 
is doing something way different. There's an there's a there's a new energy um, to what what people are what directors are putting out. And Wes Anderson, it was kind of the late '90s or the '90s version, the late '90s version, I guess, because Tarantino kind of co-opted the mid and Soderbergh co-opted the early, early mid-90s. And mid-90s. Um, you know, there's a new, but even even Soderbergh and Tarantino are, are adherent to an old style of filmmaking in 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 certain ways. Wes Anderson was kind of saying like, "No, I'm going to do something different." Yeah, and he has his I mean, homages, but it's very much homages of its time. So, just for fun, I'm going to pose a question before we wrap this up. Blue. It's, oh, sh- now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. Is there a chance? So, I've always been fascinated by the use of slow motion in this movie. Mm. And I've also been fascinated by the curtains. You know, designating the the months of the year. The kind of breaks in the, not the acts, but breaks in the story, yes. Is there a chance, Mario, that Rushmore is actually a kind of meta expression of Max's dream life versus a movie that's happening in real time? Are we seeing... Oh, man, are we doing one of these hypothetical... I'm just asking. Are we seeing a kind of expression of what Max would like his life to be like, as opposed to what Max's life is really like. No, I I, I think we're we're seeing potentially the framing of a narrative through the eyes of somebody like Max. But everything is happening as we see it. But it's clean divisions, or it's neat framing choices, or it's neat filmmaking choices, or possibly through the eyes of your very biased narrator. I think all these things are happening, but it's, I mean, as Wes Anderson said, like there, a lot of this was autobiographical. Mm -hmm. He had at an early age, he had to kind of like worry about being accepted by his peers. Like Max does the opening scene is Max solving that complicated equation and everyone uh, hoisting him up. Right. And in slow motion. Yeah, exactly. Wes Anderson said that he had like an attraction to a much older woman during this age. And so, yeah, obviously these things are kind of framed from the perversion, not, you know, in, in the sense of, and the bias of Max, but I think they're happening. And, right. I, and I think that's why it's framed as kind of a very real narrative with these whimsical kind of Well, emotions. that's, I mean, I, so my, my thinking about this, I think I agree with you, but I also think there's something. You're fucking right, you do. I, I think there's something there in the sense that, you know, there's a slow motion in the beginning when he solves the math problem. There's a slow motion. The three famous slow motion shots are the slow motion of, um, you know, him solving the problem. There's a slow motion with the bees when he gets off the elevator. Putting the gum on the wall. And there's a slow motion of him and Miss Cross dancing at the end of the movie. I would also point to the perfection of Max's, the continued evolution and perfection of Max's productions of his plays with his Serpico at Rushmore and then his, um, whatever the name of his World War II movie was. Oh, Vietnam. Or Vietnam movie, or play was. Um, Platoon-esque. It, that it gets really elaborate and really perfect. Um, I don't know. It struck me as like, oh, are we, seeing, are we seeing something inside of his head instead of something that's actually existing? And the fact that it ends so perfectly where he has this girlfriend 
Um, but he also gets to dance with Miss Cross at the end of the movie. No, but you see, know what I mean? here's, here's my counter and yeah, my yeah, pushback yeah. to that is the fact that the play is more perfect because he focuses more on it. The big thing about this is he's a smart, sure, yeah, he's yeah. a smart student. Like Guggenheim mentions that, you know, Guggenheim kind of infers that he's, he's an intelligent student. He just fucking wears himself really thin. Do you know, they mentioned that in the conversation. And then he doesn't, on, he doesn't focus he doesn't himself focus on, anything. on anything. He just spreads himself thin. Yeah. And near the end, he has like a couple of select things he's doing. He gets a C minus on that on that test. Yeah, but that's excited. that's shown as like an, a vast improvement. Is the fact that he's he's growing, um, and I think the play is an example of that. In fact, that he's starting to focus in on his loves. He's focusing on the things that are truly dear to him, and then like he's a very an imaginative child. He has these kind of like thoughts and ideations of what his life could be. And that's kind of very much told in like a theater sort of way Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, somebody with a very highly creative kind of mindset would be driven to that. And he's focusing all that energy, not so much now in his life, but in his work. And then that dance I think is done in slow motion because of the fact that when they're dancing together, when him and cross are dancing, they're, they're still like, distance between them it's like two friends dancing and it's framed by kind of everyone doing their own sort of dance but there's a lot of adultness to their dance and the fact that you know that's when he's finally taking off the glasses cross has that little smirk on her face for the first time she's not kind of seeing him in this kind of like handout way but kind of now seeing him growing in, mm-hmm. a, in a sense almost. well that's i mean I've, I've got an article in front of me that says um by deanna creasel that was published in mosaic um that Ooh, kind of talks about mosaic um the idea that the movie's really about Max's working through of his edible complex, and like the end of the movie is kind of, and I'm you know I'm not going to go into it because I rolled my movie. eyes so much <laughs> that they're downstairs. Um, but I just I wonder if edible complex wh- where exactly does he want to fuck his mother instead of just like impress his mother in this? Movie? Because he wants to fuck Miss Cross, and Miss Cross is his mother. Oh, Miss Miss Cross, the attractive thirty something. I mean, let's... He's only 15. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's fine. But Seymour Castle is like... Did you fucking see Olivia 60s. Williams in this movie? I saw her, yeah. And let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> There's no fucking ethical complex there. It's, it's Olivia Williams in her mid-30s being Olivia Williams. But this is... So this is like... I just was pointing that out to you. Um, you also mentioned something about the, like, the idea of the narrator in this movie before. And this kind of speaks to the idea of something that I think is, or the Royal Tenenbaums is a perfection of the ideas that are coming through in Rushmore, in the sense that the narrator is semi-ambiguous in Rushmore, to me anyway. Yeah, so like he, there's, there's definitely some omniscience in he rem- what the narrator sees, even though there's a lot of bias. But they, but they, so there's, there's omniscience. It's like a floating narrator. But there's omniscience and there's bias, which speaks to my idea that this is somehow a max a, a, a Max, another uh, Max we... Fisher production, but in Royal Tenenbaums, he removes any of that kind of pseudo um, interiority by uh, from one of the characters by having the Alec Baldwin actual narrator, where he's narrating a story that these characters exist in. So in the Royal Ten and in, in Rushmore, they're both R movies. I think that's what's confusing me. Um, in Rushmore. You don't have that. So you have all these devices. You have all these narrative devices where you have the plot points, you have the captions, you have all this stuff. 
Um, and the only line through the whole thing is is Max. And you have even all these directorial, um, you know, cinema moves like slow motion. Um, but there's not a there's not the only adherent the only through voice is is Max, where the through voice in Royal Tenenbaums is the omniscient narrator who was never seen. And who is only? I think we could say you know Rushmore I mean? has a floating narrator. Maybe, maybe, maybe it floats between Herman. and I'm Max. literally just throwing it out there. No, I, I, I can see what you're saying. I just don't. I think it's bullshit. I think it's nonsense. I think, I think it's going back to your point of maybe an imperfect filmmaker still finding his voice, still finding ways of telling a story, and maybe not being able to narratively create that cohesion. But I think he does so in such a way where it's okay. I'm going to be honest with you. I. Want. But the Oedipal complex, she can go fuck herself. I'll give it to you. You could read it. Um, I don't want to read that. I want to like I burn that. I agree with you, and I because I want to agree with you. I like this movie because of all the things that we said about it. That it's not a uh, um, a directorial it's, it's not a William Hurt Gina Davis picture. <laughs> no, it's definitely not that. Um, Fuck its, you, Lord. <laughs> um, the idea that Wes Anderson isn't inflicting some kind of um, screenwriterly control over it and directorial control over it, where he's trying to make some kind of weird metafiction, that he's literally just dumping all of his ideas of what would be cool in a movie into a movie, and it's just the movie. Yeah. I hope that that's it. I'm just kind of. I'm, I'm pointing out things that I noticed, as I was watching this again. Um, I think, no, I'm just throwing it out. I'm just throwing it out there. The idea that there's is there something more going on, like lo- noticing all these kind of directorial choices. Is he trying to make a a broader statement than here's just everything I've been thinking about? Kind of how you s- talk to about the idea that this is semi autobiographical. Yeah, is he trying to in um, inflict on his autobiography some of his idea, like film ideas, which is what I hope it is. Which is what I think it turns into a little bit, a little bit later with the Royal Tenenbaums. Speaking to that, and to bring it all back home, we're having this conversation, and there's a lot of directors in the late '90s who we would not have this conversation about. No, and you know, I, I keep repeating this, but he opened up doorways, and that is why. It's my number 93 is, is it is a movie of its time of its time that is very important and fundamental to my vision of film and, and how I saw film and how I saw storytelling in the media. You know, this is one of those movies that stands has a cornerstone to film. And that's why it's there on my list. 93 and the last Wes Anderson movie that's going to show up on my list. Talk about Wes Anderson one more time. But not for a long time. Not for a long time. Long time. I don't think he has a movie coming out anytime soon, so. I mean, he. Oh, God. Oh God, God. He did Isle of Dogs in March. Wow, talk about a forgettable fucking movie, huh? Isle of Dogs. Why? I you like, saw Isle of Dogs, right? No, because I, I don't give a shit. It's bad. Well, like it's bad. I'm, I'm going to say that. It's not good. So here's the thing about Wes Anderson in using songs, and I'll, you know. Just to and, and our and our conversation of Rushmore is over. Now we're just now we're just going to talk rest. No, we know we can keep recording this, but we're okay. 
We're just now just talking about modern Wes Anderson. So the idea like that it's the last moment of real joy. So he's got two moments of joy to end his, attend his movies. He has this one with the, the Faces song. But then the other moment oh, yeah. of joy is from Fantastic Mr. Fox with the... Oh, um, dancing. Yeah, where everyone's dancing. Let her dance. Yeah. Is, I mean, it's just like genius. There's like nothing like it. Yeah. In movies. He doesn't, there's no one that captures that joy of making a movie. I guess Fantastic Mr. Fox is pretty good. I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, that's pretty good. Nah. I just, it doesn't feel like a Wes Anderson movie. Well, you know what the problem is with Fantastic Mr. Fox that I watched it with my kids for the first, the only time George I saw George Clooney's the problem with that movie. I think he's the best thing of that movie. Really? I think George Clooney's too George Clooney. Oh, no, I think he's perfect as George Clooney. Hmm. But I watch it with my kids, so it's, it's I can't. Do they like it? They did like it, but I can't speak to its actual quality because it made my kids happy. No, I think it's pretty good. So that's the only thing that matters. No, it's pretty good. It is pretty good. It's just, I think I hadn't seen it after I'd seen a bunch of Wes Aaron's stuff. And I, I tried to like convince myself I liked Dirty Limited. It's right there. I, I'm going to be honest with you, Limited is we've right there. had conversations where Darjeeling Limited was your favorite Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, then I rewatched it again. <laughs> like, no, that's not right. Welcome back. Uh, my number 27, again, without introduction because i don't know how to do the introductions one day i'll figure it out maybe when i do my number that was an introduction this is this is an introduction though maybe when i do my number one i'll get i'll get this introduction thing down it is uh the 2001 film from wes anderson the royal tenenbaums there were three extraordinary children in the tenenbaum family i said sell it yeah Chaz tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Now, for the first time in 22 years... I hear you're dying. How long are you going to last? A month? A year? I've got six weeks to set things right. (laughs) They're all living together under the same roof, in harmony. I love you more than anything. (laughs) Uh, Royal Tenenbaum, as played by Gene Hackman, is the patriarch of... A family of geniuses, although he's not really very involved in their lives, as he divorces his wife, Ethelene, played by Angelica Houston, fairly early on in the children's life. Uh, the children are Chaz, Richie, and Margot. They are played, respectively, by Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, Margot is adopted, and she is a, a genius playwright. Richie is a tennis star from a very young age, and Chaz is a, a business whiz. Um, and they ob- attain some kind of cultural recognition as, as a family of geniuses. Uh, needless to say, I suppose, because there wouldn't be a movie if this wasn't the case, things don't necessarily go, uh, stay that way for the Tenenbaums. Uh, Richie kind of flames out as a tennis star. Margot doesn't write plays anymore. And Chaz is slowly, 
uh, breaking or quickly breaking under the uh, the trauma of losing his wife in a plane crash. Uh, there are many ancillary characters in this movie, as it is a Wes Anderson movie, so it wouldn't be one without uh, five extra characters played by very famous people. Uh, one of them is Eli Cash, played by Owen Wilson. He lived across the street from the Tenenbaums growing up and always wished that he could be a Tenenbaum. Um, Bill Murray plays Raleigh Sinclair. He is Margot's husband, uh, maybe her like eighth husband from his, you know, from the movie's autobiography that it lays out for her. Uh, Etheline is seeing and then subsequently engaged and married to um, Henry Sherman, who is an accountant played by Danny Glover. And Alec Baldwin provides uh, in what I, you could argue is maybe his second, third best performance as an actor, like in movies, uh, as, as the narrator of The Royal Tenenbaums. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the departed and the cooler as also on this list and we'd have to debate which where that kind of falls. Not the getaway remake and the shadow? No. Neither of those. Nor the nor the nor the hunt for red October. Um unfortunate. Yeah, unfortunate. Um and again, we're not counting 30 rock here. And maybe we should. Maybe we'll put those four things on like a Are thing. we counting his brothers? His brother's hallmark performance in Biodome. Well, we can count not Biodome, but maybe Backdraft. I do love me some Backdraft. I do love my favorite part about Backdraft is Robert De Niro reprising his role from Brazil in in Backdraft. As far as I'm concerned, it's the same role. It's just Harry Tuttle in a different in a different time continuum. Um, in 2001, Mario, I was. 19 years old and when i saw the royal tenenbaums many 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 times uh i just assumed that it would stay uh a profound viewing experience for my whole life and then uh things happened in uh my life later that kind of confirmed that that would be the case but it's it's 27 because it it kind of hasn't it's Stayed a pleasant a, a pleasant thing, but not necessarily one that holds up uh, in the same way that I assume that it did when I first saw it. I I, I um, we'll hear what you thought when you saw it. This is my first Wes. And- this is my only Wes Anderson movie. We talked about uh, we haven't talked about a Wes Anderson movie in like 70, 70 films, sixty something, something like that. A long, long time. Um, yeah, Rushmore was the last one, and that was in the nineties, right? For you. Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom. Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom. So this is Wes Anderson's third feature after Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. And I think one of the things that distinguishes this film, which I had seen by the time I seen uh, Royal Tenenbaums, I was excited for the Royal Tenenbaums. What distinguishes this movie over those movies is that Bottle Rocket is Bottle Rocket. It's a first feature. It kind of um, articulates a, a vision. It articulates an aesthetic. Um, uh Rushmore finds a way to aestheticize um, a viewpoint. So he's not aestheticizing the whole world. It's He uses his aesthetic to signal how Max Fisher sees the world. Um, the Royal Tenenbaums is different in the sense that the whole universe is aestheticized. He has created his own um, block and a half or whatever of New York 
that didn't exist before. It exists here, but somehow still feels oddly eternal. It is a place that you want, if you are into this movie, if you, if you, if you hew towards this movie, if you steer towards it, you want to find at some point, you want to experience something of this kind of New York lifestyle, the, the lifestyle that when you go out into the street, um, in the wintertime and a few flakes are falling that the Charlie Brown Christmas music, um, Christmas time is here is just somehow playing in the background of what you're doing. It is, um, the New York of just there being a park with a pond, just, just there somewhere that you could just walk next to whenever you want to have a conversation with somebody. Um, it is the New York of, of fancy backyards and elaborate, um, staircases that they're always, I think he says at one point in the, in the narration that the fourth floor is a top floor, but they're on the fourth floor in a bunch of instances. And there is more a staircase on the fourth, like above the fourth floor. Um, all of the things that Wes Anderson has been doing literally his entire career are um, here and done more perfectly here than they will be for the rest of anything he ever does. I'm, and I haven't seen the French Dispatch. I hope the French Dispatch is good, but I've been roundly disappointed with pretty much everything he's done since the Royal Tenenbaums. Why is that? I think the reason that is because he's in the Royal Tenenbaums. He doesn't aestheticize the world necessarily, although he does but it's in service of an emotion. So I don't know how you feel about this, Mario, but one of the things you notice about Wes Anderson films is that there's no more graphic suicides in Wes Anderson movies. There's no more um, fairly relatable father-son conflicts that can be had to in, in Wes Anderson movies. There are no more, again, fairly relatable questions about what it means to be part of a family and what it means to what like the nature of blood there's no more conversations about that in Wes Anderson movies but all of that stuff is here in this movie these are real emotions that he has used his style his aesthetic and then subsequently used that aesthetic and synthesized it in the form of a kind of faux novel or a faux autobiography, um, a faux piece of literature that further aestheticize it. So this, these emotions are removed like two times over. So they're, they're because they could become Wes Anderson emotions. This is where the Wes Anderson aesthetic fully blossoms. You know what I mean? Where he's using his aesthetic to avoid doing anything else, frankly, except in the genius moment in Grand Budapest Hotel where um, Willem Dafoe throws a cat out the window. I mean, that's, I've gone, I've gone this long, Mario, from the Royal Tenenbaums to Willem Dafoe throwing a cat out the window in the Grand Budapest Hotel to caring about anything that Wes Anderson is, is doing. Um, to that end, there's a lot of other things on top actually i want to get you in here first before i like go any further because any further it becomes like very personal and i i imagine all you can really say after that is like well yeah okay fine well, <laughs> i just i <laughs> i have an incredibly frustrating experience of royal tenenbaums and coming back to it that frustration still exists um i am of two minds of wes anderson 
I enjoy when he does his aesthetic in service of a story, first and foremost, which I find Rushmore does to the nth degree. Oh, there's um, no story here. I mean, and it, it no. the the no story just ties itself up like pretty purposelessly by the end of the movie. So, well, and, and with this, it's it, I'll, I'll I'll get to that, but but like the the Rushmore is like the visual aesthetic. The everything that's being done is is done simply for the point of for me to to is is in service of the narrative. Yeah. Exactly. Or um, Moonrise Kingdom to me is kind of that that perfect blend of that, that perfect encapsulation of just absolute substance over anything else. Like it's it's a razor wire thin plot, um, but to me the substance has the most control there, and it's not has overstated as it is in Isle of Dogs or Grand Budapest Hotel, where it the substance then overwhelms everything to where the substance begins overwhelming the substance. Like he starts layering on his color palette with his negative space or with the symmetry of his shots. Like Moonrise Kingdom is at least composed in a way where each of those things kind of takes center stage first and foremost. Um, without being kind of muddled by everything else. My issue with Royal Tannenbaums is I saw Royal Tannenbaums, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost positive, I had to have, after I'd seen Rushmore. And that's how I'm remembering it right now. I'm not 100% sure, but it has to be that way. Um, Or I saw it very close to one another. But Rushmore made so much more of an impact on me because everything so... Uh, combined synergistically that Royal Tannenbaum's felt as though there was a lot too much bravado on it. There's there's a lot of really solid moments in Royal Tannenbaum's that that work. Um, needle in the hay sequences. Yeah, we'll is, get there. Visually, visually, just a, a fantastic moment. Um, well, with that said, there's there's such a a, a vast dissidence for me between some of the visual motifs he's presenting and um, the characters he's presenting. And I feel as though this, to me, approaching this, it feels like it's supposed to be a character piece first and foremost, and that it ends up becoming muddled by just all of his experimentation. His, what, his experimentation that would eventually become his, his signature. Like, well, like this is which, where he's truly experimenting with everything. Well, so then I would argue that I would argue too that that experimentation becomes his crutch, um, and I actually yeah absolutely and I would kind of disagree that so wh- you mentioned Rushmore before and I think this is like a very valid conversation to have. Rushmore is a real world. He's presenting Rushmore as a real world, and all the aesthetic things that um, Wes Anderson does, which would become his crutch, are in service of establishing how Max views that world. The world around him, you know what I mean? It's a very personal thing. No one else experiences except maybe um, Dennis the Menace. Ah, oh, fuck, what's his name? Oh, the kid's name. No, I, I know who you're talking about. You know who I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I can't remember what I'm talking about. Yeah. Dennis the Menace. Um, he, but I actually don't think that, I actually think that Royal Tenenbaums is much less of a character study than Rushmore in the sense that the characters are less significant here maybe except for the except for royal than the aesthetic 
and the aesthetic he is but there's still there's still an importance to the characters there's an importance to the characters but they're kind of defined by they're not necessarily de- like so you go to the scene where Richie is waiting for Margot at the at the bus station, okay? At the, or at the Port Authority. She's waiting for the Green Line bus. She gets off that bus, and there's like two seconds of silence before uh, these Nikos these days come in. He's not... That's awesome. And it sends chills up my spine whenever I see it, and it is perfect, and it is pretty much the ideal way to view Gwyneth Paltrow in a movie. I mean, that's, I think in a lot of ways for a lot of people that has become, when you think of Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress, you think of just Margot Tenenbaum getting off that bus and Nico's deep voice, you know, resonating underneath those, that, those guitar, those pick guitar lines. Um, but that also stands in as an illustration of her character. Like he has told you things about her character and I think the narration in this movie is fucking genius. It's one of like the great narrated films of all time. I'm thinking specifically of when, um, when Royal kind of realizes that like, you know, this has been the best six weeks of my life. And then it's like, at that moment he realized that was true. And then you get the Gene Hackman eyes and the Gene Hackman face kind of experiencing that, that knowing. So the narrator knows it before, like the character in the film knows it. It's like a perfect, it's like a perfect representation of a novel. It's fucking great. But to get back to the Gwyneth Paltrow thing, that scene, that's, is that a bat? Did you see a bat? <laughs> he's just, uh, folks, he's shaking his head. There was a, there was a flicker, there was a flicker of, of light, which ended up, I, I think had to have been a car, but I instantly went like, yeah. That. Honestly, if something lands behind you on the wall, I will tell you. I will tell you if a bat like clings to your face. That's it's character building. Um, that scene. That's just it's it's like, oh, I'm off track now because of the bat. Not your fault, just the bat's fault. It's who she is somehow. You know what I mean? How Richie sees her is actually who she is as a character. In the same way that, like, um, you know, the the Nick Drake in the Ruby Tuesday, after after uh, Richie has gotten out of the hospital, you know, when they're 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 waiting, he's like he's gotten out, and he's waiting for the bus, and that Nick Drake, the fly, plays, and it's really slow, and then he goes into the tent, and he's and Margot's waiting for him, and then they he puts on the Rolling Stones record, and eventually Ruby Tuesday comes on. That's a kind of, it's an aesthetic definition of character, which is a little harder, I think, to pull off sometimes in film than just explaining who a character is through dialogue or through clothing things. I think one of the genius things about this movie is that Wes Anderson removes clothing as a signifier because everyone's always wearing the same thing. And that becomes part of their character also. So, but you, that, that character never shifts. So you can't say like, well, she was wearing this at this time and she was wearing this at this time. They're all wearing the same thing all the time. So it's it's like a, a, a steady sense of who this person is. Um, to the, you know, to go to Margot again, I think, who is Margot? Margot is Nico these days and the Ramones, Judy is a punk. That is that is Margot in, in a nutshell. 
figure that out. If you can figure out how those two songs make a person, you have figured out like who Margot is. And I, but I think that's I think that's weirdly valid. And I think each of these characters, maybe save Chaz, has an aesthetic signifier that tells you who that character is supposed to be. And the the end result of that is you don't feel like you're in the real world. You don't feel like you're in a world where, you know, when was the last movie you saw where the name of the cab company or the nature of the cab company was like significant? You know what I mean? Like a gypsy cab. They call a gypsy cab. Every single cab is a fucking wreck. You know what I mean? Like why yeah. is that? Why is that significant? It's significant because he kind of tells you it's significant. The aesthetic tells you it's significant. Like what about it? It's the fact that it doesn't exist here. Um, it's somehow not real. And the fact that you can define a person. I mean, this is one of the things. It's it's a major. It's a thing that I think about all the time. The idea that you can define a person by, you know, a song or a, or a or a thing, like someone can be most defined by that thing. And I just I just wrote a paper on high fidelity, and like the you know uh, the book, and it's in the movie too. But like Nick Hornby kind of does this in the book that like it, you know at some point Rob, uh, he organizes his his records autobiographically, and the only way that he can find a record, the only way that you can find a record is you have to be Rob. Is the only way that you can find it. And essentially, he's just created a kind of record collection version of himself. And I think that's kind of what's at play here in the Royal Tenenbaums. And for me, as someone, if you've been following this podcast, and there may be like one or two of you who have been following closely from beginning to end or who are catching up or whatever, that's like a major thing for me. Um, and I did that first come to fruition here. I don't know if it first did because High Fidelity is the year before this, and I think I read the and I read the book a little bit before I saw the movie High Fidelity, um, so it was definitely in play. But there's something like oddly appealing about the Royal Tenenbaums in a way that like it isn't, or that High Fidelity kind of isn't. And it's a it's a it's a transportive sensation. Um, to that end, like when I, you know, you mentioned Needle in the Hay before, which is Richie is, what is Richie? Richie is his suit and he is Needle in the Hay. He is, you know, composed and bland, but like secretly deep. Um, when I, you know, in 2005, when I did what Richie did was was this scene from the Royal Tenenbaums in my head when I did it a hundred percent. Like I, I actually, I, I I don't think I can confirm that. Like I can't confirm it. Like I don't remember thinking about it, but was it there? I, it, it has to be there. It, it definitely had to be there. It, it solidified like the nature of what that, that level of sadness could be and was, and it sounds like Elliot Smith, singing needle in the hay it looks like you know a bathroom mirror um you know a white sink and all that other stuff that stuff it 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 formed such a full picture of that level of sadness that wes anderson hasn't done anything like that since um i think the interesting thing about royal tenenbaums and, and i think you'll probably agree with this is that as the years have gone by 
most of that stuff has kind of been washed away. And now you're just left with like a pretty good movie. It's pretty good. It has massive narrative hole in the middle of it. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, it just kind of at, it ties together at the end. I don't think I used to think that Ben Stiller was great in this. Um, but then Greenberg came out and then, you know, and I don't love Greenberg, but he's better in Greenberg than he is in this. Um, I even think that some of the night at the museum movies came out. Do you see a bat? What? I heard something weird and it's around the same time as it was last night. So now I'm freaking out. Good. I'm definitely calling this episode. Mario sees a bat. <laughs> Good. Sorry. That's like the overarching theme. No, no, but like, and then I want to bring you back in here because I think that's really necessary. I mean, I don't love Gwyneth Paltrow. I think this is Gwyneth Paltrow's best movie. I don't love either of the Wilson brothers necessarily. I think I like them. I think they're fine. This is 100% their best movie. I feel sad that Gene Hackman made Welcome to Mooseport after this because this would have been the perfect Gene Hackman movie. This would have been the perfect movie to go out on. It's a movie. I don't know if you remember this, but when this movie came out, everyone just assumed uh, Gene. I just enemy ass- of the state. Okay. Was that after this? The perfect. Oh, no, no, no. That was before. It's 99. I don't know if you remember this, but everyone just assumed Gene Hackman was winning best picture for this movie. I mean, this is the Ethan Hawke performance of... Oh, yeah, like Best support, best Actor. Yeah. Best Actor, yeah. This is like the Ethan Hawke from First Reformed like performance of this era. I mean... He doesn't, he doesn't even get nominated, right? He doesn't even get nominated. Um, yeah, I'm sure it gets a screenplay nomination. It gets a screenplay nomination. So, I mean, Denzel Washington and Training Day wins, fine. I can, I can deal with that. Um, but everyone just assumed he was... But Training Day wasn't on anybody's radar... And this was this was the movie. Like Gene Hackman was like cemented, and he won a gold and he won a Golden Globe for it also. Um, but it's become it's become a pleasant movie with a lot of really cool things, and from a director who I I kind of like, but who I haven't ever liked as much as I liked here. And I hated Steve Zissou. Hmm. Um, I I I. I'm kind of indifferent to the Darjeeling Limited and um, I like Darjeeling Limited. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, we've talked about Darjeeling Limited a lot, uh, like at the bar and stuff. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom is fine. Um, I really disliked Grand Budapest Hotel a lot, except for the fact that F. Murray Abraham was in it. Um, he wasn't in it enough. Um, and yeah, then, cat. And Willem Dafoe threw that cat out the window, which <laughs> which is amazing. Oh, gotta get some Dafoe. Gotta get gotta get some Dafoe in me. Um, but it's both weird. those animated films are bad. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the Fantastic Mr. Fox just kind of like as a family-ish movie. You know, it's fine, but I don't really give a shit. And Isle of Dogs, I could, I don't care about it at all. Um, but it's weird when these movies kind of, and I think maybe a little bit Straw Dogs is the same. But we've talked about this before, definitely on this podcast, where these movies kind of transition. Their importance doesn't go away, but these movies transition from something you care about. Um actively as a film to something that you remember as defining uh, a moment of your life, but as a film or just kind of like, that's a, that's a good movie. I mean, I remember like this, the songs in this movie were the songs that I was obsessed with in 2001. The artists that were featured in this movie are the artists that I was obsessed with in, in, in 2001. But now I'm just like, 
I, I listen to it and I watch it and whatever, and it's it's fine. And it brings back interesting memories. I'll say interesting memories. Um, but as a as a movie, I'm just like, yeah, all right. I mean, the best part of the movie is still the paintings in Eli Cash's house. Um, of, of those weird guys on motorcycles and those masks with no shirts on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are st- like I love I love what I discovered. I think I saw this movie like three or four times in theaters. And when we just when we like finally noticed those paintings, it was like the best day of our life, and it was sad because it wasn't quotable. You couldn't <laughs> quote those paintings, um, but yeah, I mean it's it's in, uh, I don't know, it's it's weird. It's we've entered a weird. We've en- and next week is going to be equally weird, not for the same reasons that I'm not going to have the same personal, like, touchstone associated with next week's movie. But next week's movie is also going to be weird. And next week's movie is a little weird for me as well. But yeah. Not, not as weird. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Because I, I feel like... How many times have we said weird in the past five minutes? Um, it, it's interesting because of the fact that... I feel as though Royal Tenenbaums has a lot of an emotional punch to people. Like Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, does too for a newer generation. Um. But yeah, I never, just never responded to Royal Tannenbaums beyond like an intellectual level. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's because like when I had seen it, I had also just seen stuff like Requiem for a Dream and all that. So like those were a bigger emotional gut punch to me mm-hmm. at the time. And like they, those were. Me too. I, I was, I was, it was it may not necessarily a gut punch because obviously, but more in line with where I was from a narrative standpoint or from where I, what, what I I'm at this point, 15 or so, 14, mm-hmm. 15, 14, I'd say probably. So like, uh, it was, it was my expectation of, of what a film is. And so when I came into world Tana bombs, I was let down. And so I kind of put up a wall with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I never had that, I don't know. I, I actually like, even though Wes Anderson shows up on my list like twice, he, it's so it's he never really, at least for the generation in which I'm in, never made as much of an impact as he as I feel he made for everybody else. Well, that's I mean, and I think that's probably a valid. I don't know. You just maybe you missed it. Because I think when you, the Wes Anderson movies that you got when you were like in it were minor things. And when Royal Tenenbaums came out, it was like the only thing that anybody cared about. And I wouldn't necessarily say it was an Oscar movie because I don't think it, it existed back then, but not in the same way that it does now. I just, they, they probably assumed that it wasn't, I mean, I think they thought that Gene Hackman was going to get nominated and what have you. But I don't think it was, you know, um, it wasn't Oscar bait per se, but it meant it meant something like the new a new Wes Anderson movie was something really different than it became like for the next seven or eight years after that from actually probably from when Royal Tenenbaums came out till Moonrise (laughs) Kingdom. Actually, no. From when Royal Tenenbaums came out until Grand Budapest Hotel, nobody really was 
super interested in what Wes Anderson was doing. He was doing stuff, and people were happy to but have Moonrise it. Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom certainly raised eyes. Well, least, I think Moonrise like... Kingdom kind of put him back on a, on the map of people that you needed to watch. Yeah. Um, and so when Grand Budapest Hotel came out, everyone was just like, whoa, you know, this movie is great. Um, and I think I think now we're in the Wes Anderson renaissance. They were, ro- they were, they were wrong. But... They were very, very wrong. Um <laughs> that's a different that's a different conversation we could do an a non-pivotal film list and we could <laughs> we could talk about how grand Puda best hotel fits in that um but it's weird because i'm like looking i'm still like weirdly looking forward to uh the french dispatch yeah i guess it's it, it's it, i am too and it's more a thing because like he's a wildly talented filmmaker absolutely he's, he's a, an incredibly solid writer especially but he he seems lazy to me. Well, it he always feels it bums me out that real he's, lazy. Yeah, it's it it makes me so sad that he still does stuff that he was doing. You know, I don't know, twenty years ago at this point, you know, more um, in his movies. Like, well, you got to do, you have to do something different. We can't be just do this forever, can we? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I gotta say, like the the French Dispatch trailer didn't inspire confidence in me, but I'm holding out some hope, some hope that he breaks from this mold at some point. Well, I just imagine that putting someone like putting people like Timothy Chalamet and like featuring again Saoirse Ronan in his movies is going to be um, like a kind of firecracker in his in his movies, and that's a stupid thing to say. But a kind of like igniter, um, because he hasn't had somebody like that in in a long time. Like I, I think about, I mean, I know Saoirse Ronan was in Grand Budapest Hotel, but she wasn't in like a major role. I I I'm sorry to Ray Fiennes, um, but he doesn't do it for me. He doesn't get like the hair standing up on like the back of my neck. Um, but you know, Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan and. Bill Murray, I guess, to a certain extent, because he's in so little, um, you know, still kind of do. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects. And even Edward Norton in in a, in a um, Wes Anderson movie is is interesting, more way more interesting than anything he was doing before. And I'm happy that he's kind of abandoned the um, the Schwartzmans and the Wilsons to the sideline after all these years. And has has found a new kind of cadre of people that he can carry along with him and, and to make his movies. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm definitely interested to see like what Elizabeth Moss will look like in a in a Chalamet film, or Matthew Almerich will look like in a in, not a Chalamet film in a. Uh, no, no, it's Anderson a Chalamet film. film. Elizabeth yeah. Moss should be in Dune. That's the takeaway from I'm this podcast. I'm glad he's keeping Bob. I'm glad. It, I'm glad he's keeping Bob Balaban though. You gotta, you gotta always keep the Bob Balaban. You have to have all the Bob Balaban, as much Bob Balaban as you can take. So now, did I you... mean when a movie when a movie doesn't have Bob Balaban, are you like, are you even a movie? Well, when a movie doesn't have Bob Balaban, and I think that the movie could have Bob Balaban, it definitely goes down a notch in my esteem. That's true. Like the reason I, the reason we didn't love Shirley or Bass and Knight. No Bob Balaban. There, I mean, and there is obvious places where you could put a Bob Balaban. You can yeah. put 
Bob Balaban in both of those movies. He could play basketball in The Vast of Night. He could be uh He could play he could play basketball in Shirley. <laughs> and he, he, he won't be shooting any three pointers. But yeah, he could do no, it. For sure. He could do it. Um but yeah, I mean that's that's Royal Tenenbaums. I'm actually I'm glad Royal Tenenbaums was is over because I was kind of dreading it a little bit. Um because it was such I don't know how you feel about this list. But the Royal Tenenbaums for a while, for a few years, was like in the top five. And then like as the years went on, it kind of got pushed back and back and back and back. And you occasionally watch it and it's a good watch, it's a good hang. So you watch it and be like, well, that's not doing the same thing as it used to do. You know what I mean? And and it I don't think it moves any further back than something like twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, whatever. Um it's not going to hang out in the sixties for sure. Like autobiography is going to dictate that it stays roughly where it is. But as a film, I used to, th- I thought this was like the best movie. Like when well, I saw it the first well, time I was like, Oh my, this is one of the great movies I've ever seen. I mean, really my number one film from like the great films of, of my, like when I was at that age are still in my top five mm-hmm. for sure. Um, well, now, I will say that like the one movie that made a major impact on me that that felt that in the time it came out and the few years afterwards that imploded after. Since then, we've talked about already, and that's Passion of the Christ. Like mm. Passion of the Christ has had made a real impact on me in a few years. But yeah, that's it's. And I guess from an autobiographical standpoint, I was able to kind of just be like, you know, it ultimately didn't make as much of an impact on me as other things did. Yeah. Like, I'm sh- like I, I would even say something like Collateral. Don't say it. As much as you, as much as you hate that movie, still makes, still pops up in my head from a film perspective more than something like Passion of the Christ. Just oh. Passion of the Christ made a much more huge impact in the moment. Um, so yeah, like I, I definitely have have had those ones where like something's been near the forefront of my top of my list and it's since fell back down. Yeah. All right. That's and it. I'm sure like, and I'm sure like, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure like there's, there will be movies that I'm seeing has redo this list, you know, that have re- redo this list in two years, new movies will have popped up and been replaced because they're doing different things. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm doing is going back and like, I'm, I'm finding a place. I have to find a place for at eternity's gate. Um, I'm finding a place for high life, but I've, like thought about high life a lot. And I used to think that high life was going to really push some stuff out like towards the top and maybe it won't push stuff out towards the top. And I think part of that is that, um, I think Claire Denise is going to become like a very big person to me. And I'm interested to have that relationship with Claire Denise now that I would have had it with a director in like my late teens and twenties where like you just find someone and you find a director and you're just kind of like latch on to them. And I haven't had that, yeah. you know, and that's a little bit Royal Tenenbaums too, where like, you know, Rushmore, I don't know when you guys watched Rushmore, but Rushmore was like a party film. You know what I mean? Like you just kind of watched it when you were hanging out with your friends. Like we watched Akira, we watched, um, you know, Spinal Tap, we watched Monty Python, but we also watched Rushmore and Clerks and it was kind of, it fit into that like late nineties mold. Um, you know, same for me. But like when we watch movies, we would sit down and actually like watch them. So sure, we we, we, we kind of did too. Um, 
but and not need this not that we, you and me are going to have a party and we're going to be like listen people everyone drink up we're going to put on white material okay <laughs> everyone just get some snacks and a couple of beers and white materials going on and we're going to have a party we're not doing that i mean but the result of our claire denis episode is that now i'm a, and 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 high life is that now i'm a claire denis like disciple and I'm ready to follow Claire Denis to anywhere Claire Denis wants to go in the same way that after I saw Rush, um, Rush, the Royal Tenenbaums, or like Ghost World, or, you know, even something like weird like um, Amadeus. You know, we were talking about Amadeus. We were talking about Milos Forman before. After I saw Amadeus, I like when I found out that the fireman's ball was, so I I said throne of blood was the first criterion I ever got. The second or third criterion I got was the fireman's ball because Milos Forman had a criterion and I had to, I had to go to where Milos Forman wanted me to go. I just had to go there. Um, and now I think Claire Denis is kind of like one of those directors. I actually really give a shit about very little like things film wise other than like when the next Claire Denis movie is going to come out. Um, and it's kind of in the same it's in, in the same vein though as those other directors. Because right now where I'm like intensely interested in what they're doing next. Jeremy Saline would be the only one I think. Is he doing anything? There's there's nothing on the tableau I've seen. Well, and that's and he's in, an interesting person too because he's he did. What was the name of that werewolf movie? Or not werewolf movie, but the. Uh... In in the dark, into the dark. Into the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, he's the Sarsgard movie. Yeah, the Sars. Yeah, the Sarsgard. They're all Sarsgard movies after a certain point. Um, he's got something to prove. I mean, he's got to. He's got to do something. He can't just. I don't know. Coast. He had three good movies in a row. He can. Uh, I, I will give him one bad one. All right, you can do that. But uh, I. I don't know. Yeah, like I'm not latching myself on. I mean, I do know I'm I'm conflicted with putting something in my top ten. That I'm re- going to refuse to do. But if I was being earnest with myself in five, if three or five years, I'm pretty sure it's, it would show up there. Do it, Mario. Um, we all know what happen. you're talking about. It's not going to happen. Why? Because I want to. It depends on when we get to that part of the list. I guess. All right. It took me. It took me a year of sitting on on widows before I was comfortable putting it onto the list. So. Widows is great. <sighs> oh, jeez, look at that. Mario has coronavirus. It's it's a yeah because of the bat. I ate, I actually ate the bat. So. <laughs> I'm gonna, I went to the grocery store today and I had to sneeze the whole time, but I was so afraid to sneeze because uh, I thought I was going to get like stoned to death or something. I was at work and. Ran up my stairs with like a the stairs at work with like a because I go into work like once a week yep. to get my new cases. I get like this twenty pound box and I decide to like sprint up the stairs with my mask on, and then I inhaled a bit of cotton yep. from my mask. Yeah, I got just into the back of my throat and then I had like a coughing. I had to keep like so I'd go into another room to cough because yep. I was like I can't just cough a lot around my coworkers even with my mask on because I don't know what they're gonna do. Well, the library is open now. Um, well, it's going to be open for curbside pickup next week. And I went to work 
and I worked four hours with a mask on, just kind of getting the library ready to do curbside pickup, like shelving books that we've quarantined for like a month and all this other stuff. And uh, wearing a mask for four hours is a fucking nightmare. And everyone should be giving everyone high fives and Visa gift cards and whatever else you can give to people that have to work every day with a goddamn fucking mask on. Because I had to, I was choking on my own breath after yeah. like two, after like an hour of just nonstop mask wearing, I was like suffocating. Um, and I'm assuming it's something I'll get used to because I generally stay home except to go to the grocery store. Um, but. I mean, it's it's tough. It's gonna be it's gonna be some getting used to, but I think it's it's valuable. You feel more comf. It's weird to feel uncomfortable and more comfortable simultaneously because you're wearing your mask. So, um, I I just have not been indoors most times, so I just have luckily not had to have too much mask wearing experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I'm in the grocery store for 40 minutes. When I go out for walks, I don't wear the mask yet because I'm able to socially dis. I have the neighborhood where I can socially distance. Yep. You know, Did you so. go get your donuts yet, Mario? I did. You did go get your donuts? Did you wear your mask when you got I your did. donuts? I, I did get Neil's donuts, so I got Whitney donuts, but I did wear my donuts. I did wear my, I did wear my donuts. <laughs> I strapped I a donut to my face. And... Yeah. I mean, that would be a delicious form of a mask. Oh, you just got to look up all it. the holes and has, you know, you just have a, a timeline before you have to get back home because eventually the mask will be gone. Let's all do it, folks. You have hornets just, you know, stinging you in the face <laughs> eating the donuts as well. That's actually what the Candyman sequel is about in September. Just a man who distracts. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're back. Uh, that was my 99. Um, so let's go to Mario's. My number 99 is 2012's Moonrise Kingdom, written and directed by Wes Anderson. Dear Suji, here's my plan. Dear Sam, my answer is yes. Dear Suji, one. Dear Sam, where? Dear Suji, walk 400 yards due north from your house to the dirt path which has not got any name on it. Turn right and follow to the end. I will meet you in the meadow. Who's missing? Shukuski, you in there? Jiminy Cricket, he flew the coop. Well, where the hell are you? Right here. Does it concern you that your daughter has just run away from home? That's a loaded question. Until help arrives, I'm deputizing the little guy, the skinny one, and the boy with the patch on his eye to come with me in the station wagon. Starring Jared Gilman playing Sam has a star-crossed lover with Karen Haywood playing Susie. Um, the reason I, I put this on my list, I'm a really big Wes Anderson fan, uh, just from an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's very much kind of a esoteric sort of director, a very kind of kitschy director, as as he's known to be. Um, a couple of his films appear higher on my list. Actually, only one of his films appears higher on my list. I got one higher on my list, too. Yeah. 
I really enjoy Moonrise Kingdom because while I appreciate his his approach to the aesthetic um, that that he's kind of crafted into his his own style, mm-hmm. um, you know, it started from his various earlier films from Bottle Rocket. Moonrise Kingdom is the last movie to me where that aesthetic meets an actual kind of heartfelt story. Mm. Um, I think I agree with you. Everything since then, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, I think, is, is Fantastic Mr. Fox after this? Maybe Fantastic it's just right, Mr. Fox right, before. right before, right before yep. this. But, like, Isle of Dogs, both of those movies just don't do anything for me. And I think even before then, something like Darjeeling Limited, which I find fun, it doesn't really have that kind of attachment that he has to his earlier films, like yeah. Life Aquatic or Royal Tannenbaum's. And I think Moonrise Kingdom's last film, for me, where it actually felt like he was actually telling a tale and and crafting his actors in a way to to t- to weave a story instead of to paint a picture. Yeah, this is not my favorite movie, but um, I agree it is the last movie he made that isn't completely static. Mm-hmm. Um, where you know he does his famous Wes Anderson shots of just somebody's face, you know, saying something in a completely deadpan manner. Um, but you're right, this movie is attached to to some kind of a heartfelt, you know, passionate story. Where the yeah, other I, ones are just kind of, um, you know, stories built around an aesthetic idea. And I think what happened, especially with Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest Hotel, is a lot of his stories kind of deal with that childhood wonder. Mm-hmm. Both of those films, though, kind of create children's as caricatures. And Moonrise Kingdom does that in a lot of ways as well. But it's the last one that actually feels like you can kind of see some remnant of a child in, in it, a child telling that story. And yeah. Of course, like any other Wes Anderson child, they act like adults. Um, in many ways, their dialogue is stilted like an adult's. Um, they, they don't necessarily sound like an actual child. That was not a clown car, everyone. That's just some <laughs> asshole in the driveway in the <laughs> parking lot. Um, so it, it was the last film that kind of felt like that, that, that approach to childhood wonder. Another big thing for me is, is I've always been a big fan of Bruce Willis. One of his movies appears way higher on my list. I'll let you guess which that one is. Bulletproof? Oh, no, it's a... Uh, <laughs> it's definitely Hudson Hawk. Oh, okay. Wait, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe Last Boy Scout. Bulletproof. Last, Last Boy Scout is the other Damon Wayans movie. Yeah. yeah I, I was thinking about the Adam Sandler, Sandler one. Adam, Damon Wayans I really like that one as a kid. I don't know why. Bulletproof? Yeah. No, oh, I don't think I ever saw it. I just remember the cover. I think there's like a there's a scene where Adam Sandler watches porn in that movie, and I was like, sure. I was like, saw it as an eight year old, and I was like, that's exciting. <laughs> I thought I was actually going to see real porn, but besides the point. Um, <laughs> But Bruce Willis and, and Bill Murray, who we've talked about earlier in, in our trial episode uh-huh. with Ghostbusters, I think this was the first film and maybe the last film I'd seen in a long time where either of them are actually trying. Mm. And that was a big thing for me because both of those actors kind of shaped my childhood. I loved Groundhog Day. We talked about it before. I yep. loved Ghostbusters. Bruce Willis movies yet to be unnamed. You know, <laughs> these, these are movies that, that were important to me. And this is the last time, as we talked about with, you know, Glenn Gallagher and Ross, um, where we saw Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon in Wife, that was the last roles before they became caricatures of themselves. This was the last film I think I really saw Bruce Willis and Bill Murray trying, and so it's kind of like a loss to me in that way. But it's but it's like that last Moonrise Kingdom. I, I would agree with you. It's not not the best movie. It's 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 a gorgeous movie. I mean, it has a lot of those those mm-hmm. great set pieces, beautiful art direction, great cinematography. Um, but it kind of is that moment. Where, where three people I really appreciated kind of went off the cliff. Yeah, well, it's weird. I mean, I, you know, I just watched it again, obviously, um, to, to do this podcast. And um, you're right about 
I can't speak to Bruce Willis. I'm not, you know, as attuned to Bruce Willis's work. Um, but you're right about Bill Murray, 100%, in that he seemed to be phoning a lot. Like, even something that he was, like, starring in, like, St. Vincent or, you know, Lost in Translation people really like, but I never really liked Lost in Translation. You know, some of his um, Jarmouche stuff, like Dead Flowers, he seemed to be kind of in this... Uh, broken Flowers. Broken Flowers. He seemed to be in this kind of, you know, sad sack... Like old sad man rut. Yeah, and he kind of mumbles his way through a lot of the lines. And he's he kind of like he's a sad old man in this hangs too. Hangs his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, but he's the sad old man has a place. Oh, exactly. It has a context, and it's related to something that's actually happening in the movie, and not just you know. I mean, I think there's there's definitely two scenes that kind of you know he definitely is playing that sad sad character that he plays in other films, but I think there's two scenes that really kind of stand out to Bill Murray trying something. Um, there's a scene when he's in the car with. Captain Sharp, Bruce Willis's character, mm-hmm. and they're talking about you know Susie being missing, and the scene kind of transitions to the discussion of the the affair between Mrs. Bishop, you know Francis McDormand, Bill Murray's character's wife, mm-hmm. and Captain Sharp, and there's like this pause, when, and then this this moment where Bill Murray says like Why are we talking about this? And just this like expression of just like monumental anger and sadness and loss. Mm-hmm but being held back because he knows that something's more important going on. But he kind of, in the second scene that he kind of allows those emotions to kind of overflow is when he says laying in the two twin beds, you know, it's beautiful frame shot. Like obviously of the time that was typical for a married couple to be separate, but you know, this is a very purposeful framing decision. And you know, Mr. Bishop says, I would just wish the roof would fly away and I'd be sucked out, you know, And, and just the way he delivers that has, so much brokenness in it that he doesn't typically have in those other kind of roles where he plays the melancholy, depressed characters. Well, and I think the thing I like about that performance and that character is that you kind of get a, an active glimpse as to why he's broken, where in those other movies where he's the sad, broken man, he kind of starts the movie as a sad, broken man, so you just see him hitting this one note mm-hmm. through the whole thing and just kind of doing what he's doing but here he kind of goes up and down he has some angry moments he has some you know that really great moment when his sons are in the foyer and he walks out he walks by them with a gun oh, right, in his right. hand and he's with no shirt on his in his crazy polka dot pants um, and there's an element when you see that you're just like oh that's Bill Murray doing Bill Murray but he's actually added a lot of depth to this and it doesn't, character it doesn't necessarily feel just like the Bill Murray you've come to know in the feels, past 15 it years. Feels it different. feels like an ac- a character, a right. character that's been crafted by Wes Anderson. Um, and speaking also of performances, uh, another two things that I really enjoyed was the fact that this was the first time in a wild Edward Norton, you know, playing Scoutmaster Ward, doing something new. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't, he was playing a very kind of, not, I don't want to say necessarily out there character, but playing a character who is just out of his element. And, and this this like feeling of, of wonder about everything and just being downtrodden but always trying to be peppy with something you didn't really see much at Edward You see a little bit in The Death to Smoochie, but, you know, the, the Danny DeVito film that came out like 10 years earlier. Yeah, but yeah. he kind of like, he kind of falls back into those Edward Norton cliches that were popular in the 90s of kind of like that really depressed, angry character. And this one, he's just always like a PBS character. He's like a Mr. Rogers, and that's enjoyable. Yeah. Well, I mean, something I think is funny um, is that a lot of these character actors think that um, to play a different character, they really they need to do a voice. 
Oh, so exactly. in, in you know Death to Smoochie, he's got that crazy, crazy voice. Here he's just an Ed Norton voice, but he's just playing a character. Yeah, he, I mean, I there's, there's a little figured, bit of like pep in his voice, but yeah, it's not but necessarily it's not, anything different. Right, and I think he's, I think in this movie, he kind of figured out that like, oh, I can just kind of be Ed Norton, and then just act. I don't have to be like this totally different guy. I, I don't have to change, you know, my whole demeanor or my voice or anything. I can just lay into a character. And I mean, you see a little bit of that coming out in Birdman too, where he's not doing anything, you know, Di- obviously weird. Or weird. He's just like acting the shit out of a part. Exactly. And I, I don't think he thought he could do that. I think he thought he needed to be strange and odd and different when really all he wanted out of Ed Norton was to just act. Oh, exactly. And one final thing I really enjoy in terms of the performances is, is this is our first real introduction to Lucas Hedges yeah. as Redford. Um, and, you know, that guy's just been blowing the shit out of things lately. So it's from a performance standpoint, it's it's a it's a remarkable film. I think it's it's the movie where. You know, Wes Anderson always kind of like crafted together those, those weird performances like Tilda Swinton and whatnot um, in movies before then. But since then, he's kind of gone overboard with that. And this is the first one where he's kind of crafting those independent actors like Bob Balaban um, and those A-list actors and kind of like it, it perfectly melds itself. And this is like the last film I think that, that is balanced. After that, he kind of falls into the fantastical. It just becomes kind of a joke unto itself. And this is, it's kind of unfortunate because he's still, a, he's still a, a good writer. Yeah. He's a great director. He has, he has a great vision. But he's he's kind of like needs a revitalization. Well, it's like a self, I mean, everything after this, I think is like a parody of itself. Um, and I think an interesting, you know, fact of this movie is that, um, and something that, one of the things I actually really enjoyed about this movie, and I didn't really like this movie that much as I've already said, um, is that Sam is, you know, he's trying to be very grown up. Yes. You know, when him and Susie first run away, he's trying to be very grown up and he's trying to tell her all these things. Um, but he's just being really silly about everything. You know what I mean? Oh, he's, yeah, like he's talking hoisting. about the rock, the rock scene about right. putting rocks in your mouth so you won't be thirsty. And, you know, when he hoists all their gear up like the rock, but it takes him like, you know, half a second to run up the other side of the big rock. Oh, exactly. um, You know, there's all this this just like pretend play. Um, and I feel like, because even in Grand Budapest Hotel where there's, I wouldn't say they're children, but there's kids or there's people that know less than other people. He never lets anybody look like an idiot, and he's let Sam kind of look like an idiot. And that's why I appreciate, which is really I nice. appreciate too, the fact that like the Sam and Susie relationship is obviously the main focus of the story. It's, it's the main driving narrative, but it's silly. You know, their, their romance doesn't mean anything. They're two kids. You know, coming, one's coming from a completely broken background. The other one's, you know, dissatisfied in life and has some temperament issues. But that's kind of held up by this framework of the serious issues going on between Mr. and Mrs. Bishop. I mean, this is a serious, you know, marital strife going on that's mm-hmm. kind of being played still for jokes, but it is something serious. And it gives you, it's a nice balance between a fantastical, goofy relationship between two kids and these two broken characters in Mr. and Mrs. Bishop who have just been beaten down by the relationship being down by their work they're both dissatisfied attorneys yeah, yeah and it's nice to to frame those two in that kind of image and i just don't think since then wes anderson has been able to do that it's just everything to him is is this wonderland this this kind of fantastical fairy tale 
and that's that's unfortunate. Yeah, fairy tale is, a, is an interesting word for it, and especially because she you knows she reads all those those fairy tale books. Exactly. Um, you know that I think that they both think that they're living in some kind mm-hmm. of a fairy tale, and um, they're clearly not. Uh, and I don't know. Do they get to see that by the end of the movie that they're not living in a fairy tale, or does their fairy tale persist? I mean, I, I'd say for for the children. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'd say I'd say definitely. There's. I mean, he's dressed in the police captain's uniform. He's still being a kid but that's that's appropriate you know they are both still kids at that in the story they're maybe 14 at oldest mm-hmm. you know there's there's they're still time to grow um and at the same time you know they, they seem a little more centered and the relationship between mr and mrs bishop at the end also seems a little more centered seems mm-hmm. a little like like they've resolved their issues and that's once again that nice framing in the fact that has those real issues resolved themselves, at least for Susie's case, and you know, the fact that Captain Sharp is now taking care of Sam, these kind of like children's cases where everything is taken to the extreme because you're children. Yeah. You know, you take everything to the extreme, you magnify everything. Their situations, while still goofy, still childlike, are a little more grounded and centered. And that's that's an enjoyable kind of characteristic of the film. Well, and I think something, you know, as we're talking about this and I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm making a very, I'm thinking about it face as Mario's talking. It's um, a lot of squinting. There, yeah, it is a lot of squinting and just kind of staring at the wall. Um, there's kind of there's an interesting like trifecta of grown up child relationships um, that you know uh, someone could write a paper analyzing. Um, oh, I'm sure somebody has. I'm sure somebody has too. There's a brown paper there just floating <laughs> around. As the bishop with like with the bishops and their kids, specifically Susie, and then with um, Bruce Willis's character uh, Captain Sharp. Sharp yeah. And Sam, inevitably, and then um, uh, Scoutmaster Ward and his, you know, in the scouts. Like, and how each of them are trying to kind of bring, are trying to, to lay some kind of life lesson on these people, or are trying to bring them up. And obviously, Bruce, uh, or Captain Sharp, doesn't have a lot of time with Sam, but when he is, when Sam is in, is in his care at one point in the movie, you know. He gives him some sausage, what a grilled cheese and sausages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A couple of glasses of beer, um, yeah. and he gives Sam his bed while he lays on the floor. Um, it's the things that these people are willing to do for these kids. Exactly. Um, and so uh, yeah, a, that's frame, a, that's framework by the end where they're hanging off the church steeple, and yeah, you know, Sharp says, "Don't let go of Sam and Susie." You know, like that he's actually there to take care of them. That's what they're looking for. They're, they're they've been neglected. These kids, you know, Susie's been neglected because of the parents' issues. Um, and it's I a, think they start to have, have that yeah. comfort at the end. And it doesn't make me like this movie anymore because... I, I, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even the biggest fan right, of it. Right, it just, just, it just speaks of, to me in the fact that it was a director I loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the last time he's, he's doing something. Well, and I think that's kind of what I was going to say is that, we, you know, we kind of talked to the idea of, of world building before in, in the episode. Um, you either buy this... You either buy the aesthetic world that he's building or you don't. And I didn't really respond to like, and I don't always respond. I most of the time oh, don't no. respond to Wes Anderson's. Oh no, I, I'd say Ratatouille but, does a much better job of, yeah. of building a world. Sorry to bother sorry, you. Too. Also does does a great job of you know. If anything, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan. Sorry to bother you, but if anything, it, it makes you believe that world's real. And exactly. This world here doesn't necessarily feel real. Right. But I don't. Th- I but, think the characters feel real. Right. And I think the emotions are real, which I think is was is very absent in Grand Budapest no, Hotel. Absolutely. And I didn't see Isle of Dogs, but I imagine with the way that well, it's constructed, it's probably it's probably very dry. Oh, exactly. Like Grand well, Budapest Grand Budapest Hotel. Hotel and Isle of Dogs both have to raise the stakes by ten times, like 
a thousand times. Grand Budapest Hotel has overtures of, of genocide. Isle of Dogs kind of does the same thing, or does a, you know, uh, fa- like like hallmarks of fascism, and like you don't necessarily need to do that. I think it's you know you don't need to raise the stakes that much to to create can, a world. But you can raise the stakes, and you can write a movie that has some emotional resonance. Exactly. And I know, and neither. I mean, I'm, I can't say neither of those movies. Grand Budapest Hotel definitely doesn't. And but regardless of whether or not Moonrise Kingdom works for you, it clearly has an emotional core mm. um which you know some of his movies try to avoid um and then some of them just don't have yeah at all so you know i don't know does bottle rocket have an emotional core i haven't oh, seen no. that movie bottle in Rocket's like 20 just, years bottle rocket's just fun i think but but you know you know movies that followed like rushmore and relative animals moms definitely do they do have um, an emotional core yeah not the biggest life aquatic fan but that's a discussion no, no, no. for another time i don't think it actually is because i don't think that's on your list it definitely isn't on my list. That was, I mean, because I was, you know, I'm a big Royal Tenenbaums fan, and obviously, like, Quadrix, the movie after that. And I remember going to see that movie in theaters and just kind of being crestfallen. Yeah. Like, oh, no, we're same. just gonna do, we're just gonna do this. Yeah, it's with it's just, forever now. It kind of fails in with Kate Blanchett, and also, yeah, that's good. One little fun piece of trivia before we wrap up, though. Yeah, that yeah. I, that I liked. When okay. I, I was re- reading this while, while doing our, our research because. Uh, we fucking try in this. We podcast. know how to use a computer. Yeah, barely. Um, so Redford, you know, Lucas Hedges' character, uh-huh. the biggest enemy of Sam. He beats Sam in the end because he's banging Susie's actress Karen Hayward uh, in Manchester by the Sea. So fuck you, Sam. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> Redford wins. No, Nicolette pointed that out to me too. No, did you? Which, well, we were watching Nicolette, Nicolette's wife. My wife. Oh, I think I mentioned that in a previous episode. Well, I people. Remember people i i forgot my wife. i, I often i often forget her name and i i've met her multiple times um yeah she was looking up the movie and she's like oh they were both in manchester by the sea and i was like what really it's weird there needs to be more child actors in yeah. the world that we can't just can't find somebody else we're just recycling these people well, over and over and over it's again. like five of them well, but, Luke, he, but lucas hedges was in everything last year he was in like no, three yeah. movies well him and timothy uh who then they often cross paths like in the same movie that's true that's yeah. true so yeah that's my number 99 moonrise kingdom a very flawed movie but i it's something that spoke to me and the fact that it's uh, two actors and a director who i all love kind of the last film they did before uh kind of fell off a cliff for me yeah and if it, is there's i feel like is there a cliff in this movie that's oh, there's, there's that's a church there's a church steeple that they're hanging off right of, right right so. So in I guess in this in this case, Bruce Willis just let go. <laughs> so I think that's all right. It for I think that's it. Um, thank you for listening. Um, this is Pivotal Film. Go. Be sure to check us out at Pivotal Film Podcast at gmail.com and pivotalfilm.com. We're now also going to be on Stitcher, iTunes, yeah. and your favorite podcast app. Don't forget if you listen to us on iTunes, uh, rate us. I guess that makes something that's important. That makes me feel dirty to say rate us. I mean, you can rate us really badly. I'm not telling you how to rate us. I'm not saying like give us five stars. I don't know. I don't know what the implications are of the rating system. Who knows? Anyway, all right. Go um, see a movie. uh, Drink a beer. Talk about it. It's a little fun.